Did you get my memo to come today? I forgot to send it. Uh, you have to give me one minute here. Uh, we're calling this climate adjustment. You know there's two temperatures in this building, on and off. <laughs> The building is not quite as old as I am. Um, it's 124 years old. And I have a feeling that all of the various heating systems in this building are not on speaking terms. And so because they're not all talking to one another, um, that, we, that we have some areas of the building that are very cold and some areas of the building that are very warm. And so thank you for dressing for all temperatures. So I, I have to advise you to dress for all temperatures when you come to the KTC. It's because we, we, um, we like to feel like we welcome all people. And so you could say we welcome all temperature ranges as well. Um, I'm going to go ahead and leave the mask off so that you can see and hear a little better. Uh, but I do have a cold. So you'll see it go back on if I cough, etc. Um, this is only like day three of the cold, so I don't. I want to make sure this is something I don't share. First off, I, I just can't thank you enough for coming today. Um, the room really looks great when there are people in it. <laughs> no, I, I'm not kidding. And, and not only that, um, I remember one of my teachers once said that when people get together to do good, it multiplies the benefit. And he said, just as when people who get together to do bad multiply the damage, when people get together to, go to do good, it multiplies the goodness. So I want to thank you for taking time from your day to come here and help us multiply our goodness. Um, I like a room like this because in the, uh, it, it's been used as a prayer room for like longer than I've been alive. Think about this. If this building is 124 years old and the sanctuary upstairs has been used for that long, and this room has been used for overflow. This means that people have been praying in this part of the building for a hundred years. It's got to leave a mark. It's got to leave some kind of beneficial energy on the space. And so I would say that part of the reason that even though we can't control the temperature very well, and uh, and it's you know it's a basement you're bringing your pure intention and pure energy to this space makes it incredibly rich. And so I thank you for that. Uh, we do have uh, images on our shrine that were rescued from uh, the fire. And so they're a little bit crisp around the edges, a little bit smudgy around the edges, but inside them is still a small relic from an enlightened being is in the heart of each of these statues on the shrine. So you could say that each of the statues on this shrine is broadcasting right now. 
no, you're not going to hear anything, I hope. And, um, but what it's, what it's broadcasting is the energy of love and compassion and wisdom. But if you start hearing something, let me know. But each one of those uh, statues has a relic in it, and therefore it has the potential to bless us. And blessing is not something that just happens uh, externally when you're in a room with sacred objects or you're in a room with a lot of people doing prayer and meditation. When uh, blessing actually is something that, uh, this is of course my personal opinion, that arises from within you. Blessing arises from within you when you come into close proximity to holy objects and holy people and uh, beneficial objects and beneficial people. So what I'd like to say is that because the Buddha's basic teaching is that all beings, yes, even the politicians in Washington, all beings that have a mind, yes, even those politicians in Washington, all beings that have a mind have the potential to become awakened beings. They have the potential to become Buddhas. They have the potential. Now, likelihood, okay, may vary a little bit based on their habitual tendencies and karmic accumulation. Their, uh, their capability of taking that wonderful opportunity of having a mind that can become Buddha. That's a great opportunity. I like to call it the good news of Buddhism, that all beings have Buddha nature. All beings have the potential to awaken and become Buddha. But not everyone has the situation or the, um, I guess you could say, the uh, atmosphere, internal or external, to develop that. In other words, there are people and beings who are born in what we might call unfortunate states. People who are born and beings who are born in places where uh, they are uh, captive or where they are unable to meditate, where they are unable to pray because of the authorities. They persecute those who pray or those who meditate. And so there are lots of places where one's ability to actually practice is somewhat dampened by circumstances. But everybody has Buddha nature. So where does blessing come from? How does that happen? Blessing happens when our Buddha potential comes in close proximity with something that is beneficial and, shall we say, sacred. A being who has done so much meditation that their mind has changed because of their meditation. We might call such a person a holy person, a sacred person, we might call that. And when we come close to them, we might, be, we might feel something that we may not completely understand it might be a good feeling, it might be an uncomfortable feeling, it might be this or it might be that. But we feel something. And the reason for that is that their goodness and our inner goodness, bless you, resonate. Yeah, I've got one of those. <laughs> resonate. Resonate. Uh, the example, and you've heard me use this example before, the example of the tuning fork. Everybody knows in music, they use specifically tuned pieces of metal. They strike that piece of metal and it resounds with the sound of a, of a pure note. Like, A, you know. 
Now, what, when you strike a tuning fork and you hold it next to one that is tuned to the exact same note, it will begin to resonate sympathetically because of the vibration. It will begin to resonate. That's just science. So here's what I say. Like that example from science, when we get close to something that exemplifies our basic nature, that basic nature is activated within us, is activated. And when it's activated, we become, we feel something, we feel inspired, we feel happy, we feel whatever. And so because of that, because of that, I would say that blessing sometimes is not something that is cast upon us from without, but actually arises from within. The, uh, the 20th century great Tibetan master, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, once said that we are guided in some little part by our basic wisdom, which may not be brought to fruition yet, so you can't trust it 100%. But sometimes our basic wisdom will guide us to rooms like these. Our basic wisdom will say, hmm, I want to check out that Buddhist place. Or I would like to go to that on that pilgrimage. Or I would like to go to that sacred place where a Buddha of the past lived. Whatever. So our basic wisdom will guide us in at least a little, in little ways, toward that which will help us. Of course, we also have other forces guiding us as well. And some of them are not so friendly. Um, the, our habits shall we say. We have some, I'm sorry to say, you may not have these, but I do. They're called bad habits. And bad habits can sometimes uh, lead you, shall we say, astray. Make you think, oh, doing this thing or that thing is a good idea, when it's not. So at any rate, uh, we have to do our best to follow that advice, which brings benefit to ourselves and benefit to others while reducing those thoughts, words, and actions that bring harm to ourselves and harm to others. So I guess you could say that's the basic challenge of trying to live a spiritual lifestyle in this amazingly complex modern world. Now this will delight you. My notes for today's talk are on my iPhone. I was, you know, I was busy the other day, and I, so I have to get out my phone. Now I know. See, I knew there was a reason I had two water bottles. Last week, um, last week during, I know. Is it good feng shui? I guess, okay. Um, last week when I gave uh, the talk on New Year's Day, I said I was going to talk about resolutions, and I offered everybody a few extra in case they needed some. Uh, among the uh, additional, uh, we could call them value-added, um, resolutions I offered was uh, to increase one's uh, spiritual practice and to make a commitment to one's spiritual practice and so forth. But this week I got, I kind of got the feeling that I was struggling a little bit with that advice. Not that it wasn't good advice to give, but it, it's hard to keep. And so I decided that this week and next week, uh, which means actually not this week and next week, but this weekend, the week after next, because next week, uh, Kempo Ergen Tenzin will be teaching next Sunday, 
at uh, the Thurber Center, 91 Jefferson, just right over here. I hope that's right. Yes, 91 Jefferson, just, uh, just a little west down the road here. Um, so if you show up here next week, uh, we won't be here, but you can just take a, you know, just take a few blocks that away and you'll be with us. Um, the synagogue is closed several uh, weekends a year, and this, is, this coming one is one of them, and so we're going to be down there. So at any rate, um, but uh, this week and then the next time I teach, which will be two weeks from now, I'm going to talk about what to do when it's hard to keep your resolution. I mean, why not, right? I mean, I want to give myself the, the best possible chance to actually accomplish something with my resolution. So, um, so at any rate, uh, so today, uh, I decided to give today's talk a kind of a, not a, a real high, dharmically charged topic name. I'm calling it How to Resist That Itch. <laughs> you know that itch. You know it. You're having a, shall we say, conversation with someone. And you're in disagreement about something. I, I hear that's been happening a lot in the last few months. I don't know if maybe I've been gone somewhere, but I've been hearing a lot of, of people disagreeing about various things. Anyway, so let's say that you're having a conversation with a friend and you're having a disagreement. At some point during the conversation, you might feel something that feels like an itch. Now, it's not really like a, a mosquito bite itch, but it's kind of an interior itch to say something. To try to not just tell them your opinion, but to convince them that you are 100% right and they are 100% wrong. You'll have this itch. It's going to start coming up from within your mind. Oh yes, your body may feel something too, like this discomfort, this tension that sort of Enter, you know, kind of like, and infuriates you. You might feel a little anger rising, and but this itch is not necessarily your friend. This is my job today, to tell you that that itch may not be telling you to do something in your best interest. The the there's lots of reasons for this. I mean, we uh, we do have medical people in the room who can explain to you what cortisol is that it is a hormone released by the body in states of rage or even mild anger, and that it's actually unhealthy and not good for you. It damages you from the inside out. Well, that itch might be releasing a little bit of that negativity into your system. That itch of that person is totally wrong, and I am totally right, and how dare they say that to me? So. This is, this, is my, this is my teaching for today, how to resist that itch. Um, the resi we have to resist the itch to do something that's, I guess I'm going to uh, define it as being willful. Remember when we were kids, willful was a real word, you know? Oh, you're such a willful child. Is that good? Is that good? Because I hear that willpower is, is a good thing. At any rate, you're such a willful person. What does willfulness indicate? It indicates that we are acting from a place of 
identification. We're identifying with an idea. We're identifying with a person, me. I am identifying with me. And I think that I am smart. I don't know about you, but I think I'm smart. Now, you may not think I'm smart, and so you may come and say, you're wrong. And instantly, the part of me that is willful will be the part that says, no, I'm right. I'm good. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. So what's going to happen is that then we will be, shall we say, inspired by our idea and identity as a self, as a person. I identify as me with the things that I like and the things that I don't like and so forth and so on. And I identify with it so greatly that I think, how dare they say that to me? And so willfulness is anchored in the concept of self. Let's start there. Willfulness is anchored in the concept of self. I am me and this is what I'm like and so forth and so on. Well, what's really interesting is that in the Buddhist teaching, he said that this self-identification is important because we need to feel that we are independent. We need to feel that we are independent and, uh, from others and that so forth and so on. But you can kind of go over the edge and become not just self-aware, but self-clinging. We can actually cling to ourselves. Now, we need to have a certain amount of self-clinging, otherwise we will walk out and play in traffic, which is, by the way, not recommended. No playing in traffic, no. But we need to have a certain amount of self-cherishing or self-clinging to take care of the body that we have and the mind that we have and, and our opportunity to bring our Buddha nature to fruition. So we need to have a certain amount of self-clinging. But the problem is we don't know where to stop. But this itch, this feeling, this tension that arises in us when somebody pushes and pokes our self-clinging, this is an important message coming to you from your Buddha nature. This itch, this tension, it's telling you, warning, warning. Because what you do and say under the influence of the itch may not be good for you and it may not be good for the other person. So you have to proceed with caution. You have to proceed with caution. When you interact with other people, when we interact with other people, we are creating habits for ourselves. A habit of reacting in a certain way. A habit of saying certain things, thinking certain things, judging people in certain ways. And so we have to recognize when that judgment, that self-cherishing is activated. And then be careful and watch what comes out of our mouth, what we think and what we do. Because the, the Buddha in his teaching said, what you think, say, and do affects how you experience the world. He said, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts, and with our thoughts, we make the world. We make the world with our thoughts, words, and actions. We create our experience of the world with what we do think and say. So I frequently tell the story uh, of the person I used to work with who was a terrible gossip. 
She loved to dish out the dirt on everybody at work. She knew everybody's business, and she made sure that everybody else knew everybody else's business. But the problem was she was creating around herself an atmosphere that wasn't healthy. And you know what? Because she was such a great gossip, she began to become afraid. And the thing she was afraid of was that people were gossiping about her. So what she, what she did was she created a world of gossip that she then had to live in. She had to live in that world, and it was not comfortable. So if we say harmful things to other people, we will perceive that we receive those harmful things in the future. We're setting, you could say we're setting our own thermostat. We're setting our own experience stat to experience specific things. If we are harsh with other people, we will be harsh with ourselves, or vice versa. If we're harsh with ourselves, we'll be harsh with other people. And this harshness will influence how we experience absolutely everything. We'll live in a world that seems quite harsh. We have some elephants upstairs. <laughs> elephants. See, habitual tendencies, they're really hard to work with. Anyway, so, uh, and so what we have to learn how to do is resist the itch to cause harm. We have to resist the itch to cause harm. And so how do we do that? Well, first, we have to see that harm is happening. When we are harsh with other people, we have to see it, as, especially if it's coming from a, a feeling that we might have of superiority. Now, this may not be you, so you don't have to take this as being true for you, but it's true for me. When I criticize other people, I often take the position of being a superior person who has the right to judge because I'm so good. I'm so good that I have the right to judge each and every other person who comes into my life. Even the elephants. Even the elephants. I have a right to judge all of that. And so, as a result, I, my self-cherishing gets bigger, da, 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 da. or so that happens, and then I let everybody know it, and why don't they appreciate it? Why don't they see how superior I am? I just don't understand it. So I've created a world in which I am basically asking for someone to say, excuse me, you're not all that great. And so what I'm doing by having this superior feeling is that I am inviting humiliation, disappointment, feeling uh, inferior. I'm inviting that by exercising my superiority. I'm inviting negative things. And so how do we deal? Well, first of all, we have to see that harming others is harming ourselves. Like the poor woman who thought that gossiping was harmless until it, it gave her the fear that everybody was gossiping about her. Or me pretending I'm superior. And then getting the feeling that people are criticizing me and, and harming me and not appreciating me. All those things that the superior person often feels. So I'm creating negative experiences for myself with how I am. And it's habitual. They don't call it a knee-jerk reaction for nothing. It's reflexive. 
we get used to it. We get a habit of it. And because we have a habit of it, then we feel that's normal. And because we feel it's normal, we get really shocked when we find out it's not. So what this means is that we have to begin to question. We have to begin to question our self-superiority. We have to begin to question it. Like, are you really that smart? Or perhaps you could question it by saying, you know, that other person thinks exactly the same thing. They think they're smart too. And what that does is that creates a little bit of what I might call empathy. Empathy. We have some empathy for why other people act in harmful ways. They're not doing it because they're 100% bad. They're doing it because they have a habit of feeling superior. And so what we have to do is we have to see that this superior attitude and the anger and all the other things that come with it uh, have the potential to harm us by placing us in a world that can be painful. The Buddha had a, uh, had a word for it. He called it samsara, cyclic existence, going around and around and around. But what's interesting is that we can actually change this. We don't have to give in to habit every time. We can actually change a habit. And, uh, and those of you who have been coming to the center here for a while have already learned how to do this, although you may not know that yet. Anybody who's come to our basic meditation classes and learned that uh, shamatha meditation, the breath awareness meditation where you observe your breathing coming in and going out and going in and going out, that basic shamatha meditation is the first step in being able to recognize self-cherishing. Why? Because when you're sitting and meditating, at first you're like really uncomfortable and trying to figure out the body posture and then you're kind of uncomfortable because your mind has to like do this one thing and it's like, can I do something else please? And we invite in all kinds of distractions and so forth. But if we persist and actually keep bringing our attention back when it wanders off and then when it wanders off we just keep bringing it back, what happens is we change our choiceometer. We'll call it a choiceometer. We, we begin to be able to make choices better about the things that we actually entertain on our minds. We may never be able to control what just pops up. I mean, because all kinds of stuff just pops up. I mean, we've got, we've got a memory bank that just won't quit. So there's a lot of stuff that's just going to pop up, but what do we actually invite in and entertain and work on? We can actually begin to choose what we think and what, and what we let go of. Because remember, in meditation, you can let go of a thought, even just one thought. One thought, this bad thing happened to me yesterday. Oh, that's terrible, this bad thing that happened to me. Oh, wait a minute, I'm thinking. Then you come back to the breath, and then you let that negative thought about yesterday go. Now, where did it go? It just kind of disappeared back into central casting, you know, back into back into the, you know, um, back into your mind. It just disappeared. But it disappeared, which means that letting go of something allows it, allows is the important word, allows it to disappear. You allowed that to disappear. You didn't grab it back. You allowed it to disappear. Unless it's that song you can't get out of your head. Then that song you can't get out of your head, you're kind of like grabbing that. I'm just, bad news. It's, you kind of want that song. I'm just saying. Part of you wants that song. I'm not sure why. It's okay. There are a lot of stuff we do we don't understand, but it's okay. So 
what we, what we learn in shamatha is how to let go. We learn how to let go of a thought. We learn how. And then we let go of another thought. And then we let go of another thought. And then we let go of another thought. And slowly, we get good at letting go. And when we get good at letting go, then we're going to notice when we are not meditating, oh, I'm thinking about that old thing that happened yesterday. Why am I doing that? And then we can let it go right there. We can do it again when we're not meditating. And so being able to recognize thoughts and let them go is the, the beginning of learning how to not scratch that itch. How to not scratch that itch. And then, of course, the other part is knowing that the itch does not always lead to someplace you want to go. One of my teachers once said, we make a mistake, for example, about our mental afflictions. We sort, part of us sort of doesn't like them because we don't like getting angry or we don't like this, but part of us kind of likes them. Part of us thinks that when we get angry, that somehow we're stronger and better and more right and all of this kind of thing. So part of us makes a mistake about our mental afflictions, thinking that our mental afflictions make us better. It's kind of like what happens when we go to the bar and we have a drink, and then we start getting smarter. <laughs> but it's a mistake, because it's not really happening. It's not really happening. It's our imagination. So. What we need to do is we need to recognize that anger is not necessarily our friend, and indulging our anger is not necessarily going to help us. And, and by indulging the anger, it means sitting and working on it in your mind. That person is wrong, I'm going to get even. That person is wrong, I'm going to get even. Whatever crazy thing we think about when we get angry. Or saying nasty things to people, thinking that somehow that's going to make it better. It usually doesn't. We, we make the mistake that thinking that anger makes us smart and intelligent and right, and, but it doesn't. It makes us kind of stupid. It makes us make mistakes and so forth. I'll never forget one time this fella yelled at me in the, in the cloakroom at the old KTC when we were still on High Street. And he yelled at me and he was, oh, he was just, he was way out there. He was really angry. And then when he was done, oh, excuse me, um, when, um, it has a comment too. Um, yeah, I shouldn't subscribe to headlines. I'm, I'm an old journalist, and so New York Times headlines come across when I am least expecting them. Um, but he, when it was all over, he said, ah, I feel so much better now. <laughs> this guy was, you know. Some people will know this guy. I'm not going to identify him. But anyway, and ah, I feel so much better now. He's passed away. It's okay. And, um, and, then, uh, and then I say, yeah, I know you feel better, but what about me? What about me? I know you feel great, but what about me? So he was making the mistake of thinking that by venting his anger on somebody, he was somehow making the world right again. We see this happening a lot these days. And we have to be very careful not to allow our anger to get the better of us. 
So the first thing to do is to, to in order to stop scratching that itch, that self-cherishing itch, is to first uh, notice it, which we can do if we do meditation. We're actually going to begin, be, begin to feel that tension, that discomfort. Pema Chodron, the, the wonderful Buddhist teacher, she calls it Shenpa, S-H-E-N-P-A, Shenpa. It means to be hooked by something. It means that our self-cherishing attitude has been activated by something that goes against our self-cherishing. So if, some, if we're having a great day and think everything's going our way and then suddenly somebody says, you know, you're really stupid. How stupid can you be? And I get really upset. You can feel. You can feel your eyebrows colliding. You can feel your muscles tensing up because you're going to have a fight. So basically, that's Shenpa. That is Shenpa. That is being hooked. Your self-cherishing attitude has been awakened and has been um, activated by this feeling. And so what we need to do then is, is feel that Shenpa as warning, warning, and say and slow down a little bit. Is see the warning in the feeling. See the warning in, I need to be careful now. And we also then have to begin to doubt the benefit of our mental afflictions. We have to begin to doubt the benefit and say, maybe they're not all they're cracked up to be. And begin to train in the opposite. We have to train in the opposite. It's not going to come to us naturally, I'm just saying. Being patient, which is the opposite of anger, is not coming to us naturally. We're not used to that. We live in an instant society where you can get instant gratification anytime. Excuse me, I have to read my email. You know, we, we live in an instant society where we can be instantly entertained, instantly this, instantly that. So patience is not necessarily something we're being trained in. So that's why shamatha is also important because it trains us to let go and to be patient. And so what we might do is when we feel that itch to do something, that itch of shenpa, that inch, that that itch, that tension of complication, we might take a breath, train ourselves to take a breath when we feel it. One more. Because if we can do that, we can reset, perhaps, the itch. We can reset it, at least just a little bit, and alert ourselves to the importance of being careful. And if we can train in the opposite of anger, which is uh, love and compassion, this will also be helpful, which is why the practice of Tonglen, sending and receiving, is so important. I talked about this briefly last week. When you're not angry, it's the best time to practice Tonglen. When you're just sitting on your meditation seat, that's the best time to practice it because you're not angry. You're in a neutral situation, a neutral setting, safe place, your meditation seat, and you can then uh, breathe in and imagine that you're removing suffering from others and breathe out and think that you're giving them benefit. It's a training. 
you're not actually removing the sufferings from the world. You're just imagining and wishing and aspiring to someday be able to do that. As you breathe out, think that you're giving all the goodness that exists in the world to others who are suffering. Breathe in and think, may all beings like me be free of suffering. Breathing out, think, may they have happiness. And in this way, we train in having an altruistic response to things. We train in an altruistic response. And by training in the opposite of anger, by training in the opposite of anger, we then slowly begin to have a new way of reacting. And uh, I'll get into that a little more deeply next time I talk, because uh, today's topic was how to resist the itch. And the next one is going to be how to actually make the changes that benefit us. How to make the changes that actually benefit. Because a lot of people make resolutions to do things that are beneficial for themselves, but they somehow can't manage to actually do those beneficial things. They can't actually manage to do them. They find reasons not to do those things that are beneficial to themselves. So we're going to talk about strategies for that the next time. But to summarize what I talked about today is that, uh, is that the itch is this shenpa, this willfulness, this uh, self-cherishing that gets activated when something that we don't like arises in our realm of experience. That when this shenpa or this self, you know, this being hooked arises, that that itch, that feeling of discomfort. By the way, I read a, a wonderful essay by a Buddhist teacher who said, you know what the Buddhist definition, no, what the Buddhist definition of the word suffering is? Discomfort. Discomfort. Something is just not right. Something you're dissatisfied about something. Something just doesn't feel right. That is what dukkha or suffering is. The feeling of not rightness. Something is not right. And that all of this comes back to the self-cherishing attitude and what we think of as being right. And so what we have to do is we have to work with the definitions of right and wrong. What's right and what's not right. We have to work with those definitions and then begin to practice being stable. Practice not being reactive. Practice being stable in the midst of whatever's going on. Practice being even and stable. That's what shamatha is all, all about. Breathing in and breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out, and allowing your attention to rest on that. And that when your attention wanders, you bring it back. When your attention wanders, you bring it back over and over again so that we create a habit of non-reactiveness, a habit of stability and evenness. Even if it only lasts for as long as you're on your meditation seat, that is a good start. I call that a good start. Second thing is that uh, we have to recognize that uh, mental afflictions are not necessarily going to make us better. Just as that first drink in the bar usually does not make us better. So. What we have to do is we have to understand that 
indulging mental afflictions does not necessarily make us better. Begin to doubt their goodness. And that will help us to make better choices when the itch comes. We can resist the itch a little bit more, the itch to do some harm to ourselves or the itch to do some harm to somebody else. We can resist that itch a little better if we recognize that by scratching that itch, we're actually harming ourselves. I mean, everybody's had a pet who's done the scratching thing, and, and, and the pet just really suffers. We just hate to see that happen. But in a way, we're sort of doing it ourselves by always giving in to our mental affliction. So we have to find a way to have as much compassion for ourselves as we have for our misguided pets. So if we can work on uh, acknowledging and recognizing what's healthy and unhealthy in our mental afflictions, and then train in the opposite, patience and love and compassion, then we're going to be ahead. So next time I talk, which will be uh, two weeks from today, in this location, I will teach the meditation called Tonglen. We'll do some of it, and then we will see how the strength of Tonglen helps us to do the things that are good for us. Even when we're not sure, we want to do the things that are good for us. I mean, like I say, so many people say to me, oh, I had the intention to exercise, or I had the intention to do this, or I had the intention to do that, but I just can't seem to do the things that are good for me. I almost always seem to do the things that are bad for me. How can I fix that? Well, we can fix it by first practicing compassion for ourselves and then practicing compassion for others. But that's for the next talk. Um, I'm thinking that we have some time, just a little bit of time here. But, so maybe we could have a discussion about the itch. You can tell me a story about the, own, the sometimes you've had that itch or sometimes when you have been able to resist it, sometimes when you haven't. Or if you have any question about the whole idea of self-clinging, or the whole idea of shenpa, or the whole idea of meditation. You can ask really, literally about anything. Um, we do have a question microphone off to the side because we are recording today's talk. And this way, people who were not able to be here today can hear it. So um, don't be shy. Uh, if you can't quite get to the, to the microphone, you can uh, let me know, and I'll repeat the question for the recording. Questions, thoughts? Uh-oh, I put him to sleep again. Uh-oh. OK, yeah. Can, can you get to the mic? Yeah, OK. See, this is the, I call this aerobic Buddhism. I have a friend who's a Christian pastor, and I said, yeah, why don't you guys take questions after the end of your sermons? He said, no, we'd be there all day. <laughs> yeah, but, I, you know, just have people write them out in advance so he knows what they're going to be. I think it, I think it be, could be good. Okay. Yeah. I, I understand how the itch is anger or um, thinking about yourself. Yeah. Could you tell me how the itch is about of loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think um, we have to remember that um, feelings 
And my, let me just give you my understanding. My understanding is that um, feelings of loss come from not necessarily uh, a, another person. Uh, we can, there are lots of things we can feel loss about. First of all, I, I mean, we have to say that there are lots of things you can feel loss about. You can feel loss about a person who's died or a person who's left your life. You can feel loss about your job. You can feel loss about a situation, like maybe something happened at work and now you're not, no longer the boss or something like that. There are lots of things you can feel loss about. Some people feel loss um, when they lose their freedom in one way or another. So there's lots of things people can feel loss about. And uh, I think the, that loss comes from having an idea of how things are and wanting things to stay exactly as they are and not change. And so if you think that things are permanent and should never change, then and can never change and must never change, then this is where feelings of loss come from is this feeling that things must never change, this, real, uh, this realization that things must be permanent. This happened at the time of the Buddha. While the Buddha was alive, very sad story, a woman came with a child, and the child um, was dying or had already died. You hear various versions of these stories. And, they, and the, the woman said, please, Buddha, please bring my child back to life. And the Buddha said, well, he said, please, I would like to ask you to go to every home in this village and bring me a mustard seed from every home in this village where there has been no death. And so she went around to every place, and there was not a single home in that village where there had not been a death. Oh, my brother had died, or oh, my child had died, or oh, my parent had died, or... So, there, so what she was slowly brought to the realization of was that her pain is universal. Her pain was universal. It didn't make her pain less. And the Buddha was not trying to tell her that it was wrong to feel her loss. He wasn't telling her that. He was telling her that it was important to see her loss in perspective. He wasn't saying, don't feel how you feel, because of course she was going to feel how. It, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't feel that loss? So what I tell people when they experience a loss is that this is the way of the world. Things are impermanent and things do change. And this is where the pain comes from. So right now you're feeling the pain of the loss, and it will come in waves. Sometimes you'll feel it, sometimes you won't. Sometimes you'll feel it again, sometimes you won't. And I said, so maybe the important thing is to decide what you're going to do when you feel it. Make a decision about what you're going to do every time you feel that loss. And what, and what I recommend to people mostly is that they say a prayer the moment they feel that loss. 
Their prayer can be any kind of prayer. You can say, may all beings be free from the feeling of loss. That's a compassion prayer. May all beings be free of the feeling of loss. Or you could say, I pray for this person that I have lost. Or I pray for everyone who is feeling loss. Or I pray for that, uh, that all goes well for this person I no longer see. Something positive can come from something negative. It's absolute. It can happen if we can train what to do. So the bottom line, what the Buddha was trying to teach the bereaved mother was that it's not wrong to feel loss. It's not wrong. It is universal. And that recognizing the universality of it, we can train in sending out good thoughts to ourselves, our families, those we've lost. We can use the occasion of feeling the loss to universalize and open ourselves up to the entire world and not have it be just this small circle of me and my loss, me and my loss, me and my loss, which can take us down into the earth in a way, into sadness. So the idea is to open up the circle and include other people and other losses so that we recognize that we're all part of a family and that we are all in this together. So that's what I can think of when I think of loss. If loss can help us to feel compassion for others, that's fantastic. So we shouldn't try to get rid of feelings of loss. That's the bottom line. Don't try to get rid of your feelings of loss. Don't. Instead, use the feeling of loss as a prompt to pray and meditate and wish the benefit of others. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Other things to talk about? Yeah, me too. And, uh, you know, it's something like in my lifestyle changes or whatever, I've had to sort of adjust and not react to things. But the big, uh, you know, where I can be my own worst enemy. I, I hear that. But, uh, you know, my, my big, I think my fault that I have is that I'll take if someone that's uh, I disagree with or what have you, mm. and I'll take them out, I'll try to move them out of the uh, aversion, you know, attraction, aversion. Mm -hmm. I've moved from the aversion to the indifference. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just, yeah. no, I'm not going to deal with it. Sure. It's, sure. And so, um, I guess my question is, I mean, I, I, I feel like I do that way probably too much. I hear you. So. Yeah, you know, I, I really understand this. Um, I, I met a really great Buddhist master. Uh, his name is Tai Sitra Rinpoche. He's really, you know, kind of high up. He has many monasteries. He's a very wise person. He was in the United States this year, and he talked about exactly this. 
exactly this. He said, yes, he said, in Buddhism, like in Christianity, we tell people to love your enemies and, you know, and this sort of thing. He said, but I understand that this is not immediate. You can't immediately love your enemies. It's not going to happen right away. So he said, at first, he said, try. He didn't use the word indifference. He said, try to stop hating them. Try that first. Say, you know, I'm going to stop hating them. That's the first, that's the first step. Then he says the next step would be, I feel sorry for them. I feel sorry for them. As you can see, there's still a superiority thing going on. In um, I feel sorry for them. And then he said, and then finally over time, he said, this is not going to happen immediately. This is going to take place over time. First stop hating, then, oh, I kind of feel sorry for it. And then uh, finally he said, you will gain patience with it. And then finally you can feel compassion for it. So he says it's a, it's a progression. So if right now you're feeling a, a, like um, you're not hating them or you're indifferent or whatever, that's probably good. You're probably making progress toward the next stage. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. And then gradually it will change, especially if you're training in the opposite, slowly doing Tonglen and. Yeah, I mean, I, I, my practices probably are not the best, but I, yeah. not, oh, none it, of us has. Yeah, but I, I will say this: sometimes, I mean, I think that uh, I will let things build up, and finally something will happen, and I'll finally. Well, okay, I'm saying something. <laughs> right, and right. These, these yeah. are a lot of times the people who I know really well. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And so I finally say what I say. And I think, I, I mean, uh, the Christmas time has been this been oh, like this. Oh, holidays, you know? yeah, so yeah. Going back, I mean, I, I don't really have regrets. I mean, a lot of times what I've learned, you know, basically is like, well, if I do things, I just have to live with what I do. Yeah. And not try to find, you know, fault with, you know, just if I do something, I have to accept, you know. Yeah, I hear that. And uh, so, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure because it's it's like it's not trying to be superior and you know, like, I know. You know and saying, well, if you could only be more like me or something like that. <laughs> you know, You've I heard that story then. Then I have to work with myself so much. And that's yeah. Well, yeah, I th I think gradually developing some compassion for yourself is going to help a lot. And so we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks and then put that on, we can, we'll put it online and then you can download and listen if you can't be here. But that would be the thing I would recommend. It would be to do some prayer and meditation, making the aspiration, may I um, be gentle with myself. May I become more kind toward myself. I mean, does, when you become more kind toward yourself, doesn't mean that you let yourself get away with bad behavior. But you say, well, I've got habits like other people, and so I'm going to I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm going to keep trying to work on it. There's a there's actually a Buddhist practice of confession. You know, we don't go into a room with a person in a screen or anything like that. But uh, but uh, but we actually imagine that we're in front of the Buddha, and we say, okay, Buddha, you're actually outside of samsara, so I can tell you what what's been going on with me, and then you mentally or you know whatever talk to the Buddha. And then you say, I regret these things greatly from my heart, and I make the aspiration that I never do those again. And 
that's a Buddhist confession, believe it or not. And doing that actually helps us to get past things. So that's also something you can do. Uh, the, uh, as you can hear, the elephants are back. Um, um, I think we're out of time, unfortunately, so I can't take another question. But if you have a question and you didn't feel like you could ask it, you can uh, ask me afterwards because I'll be circulating around. Um, I just want to thank you for your for being here today. I am totally knocked out that you all came. I am. I'm totally knocked out. It's wonderful because um, there have been uh, times uh, after the fire you know, when there were just a handful of people in this room. And to see all of you here makes me incredibly happy. Uh, even if you can't get here uh, at other times, just keep coming back, as my buddies in 12-step like to say. Just keep coming back and keep, keep working, because the Buddhists literally do believe where there's life, there's hope. And that, there, and that the next moment is full of possibilities. The next moment is all full of possibility because we have Buddha nature. See, it's going to win. Buddha nature is eventually going to win. Don't know when, but it's eventually going to win because it's there and it cannot be denied. You know, so uh, over time, things will improve. So thank you for listening to uh, my yada, yada, yada. Um, but I, I just can't thank you enough. And I hope that this week you're able to um, watch your itch, even if you can't stop scratching, if you can become somewhat aware of it and understand that you might want to try something different, that would be like totally awesome. And if you can be here on Wednesday, right? What time? Seven o'clock. Be here on Wednesday. You can be here on Tuesday and we'll be doing Chenrezy Mantra down here in this room at seven o'clock. But at Wednesday at 7 o'clock, uh, Kemba Ugin Tenzin with his translator Tenzin Jinni will be here. And uh, you can see a Tibetan Lama up close and personal. And it's, we're calling it a family gathering. So you can like, ask him questions like you're asking me. And, uh, and uh, he will give you fantastic answers. He's, he's very warm and very kind. So you'll enjoy, you'll enjoy meeting him. Let's do a Buddhist thing and sit quietly for a moment and mentally dedicate the goodness of this session. We dedicate the goodness of this session to all beings who suffer. We dedicate it to ourselves and all of our confusion. We dedicate it to our ability to overcome confusion. We dedicate it to our ability to practice regularly. We dedicate it to our ability to change one day at a time, slowly, step by step. And we dedicate it that all beings everywhere be free from negative emotions and negative states, and that they come to Buddhahood. And coming to Buddhahood, may they emanate in all directions and benefit sentient beings endlessly. We mentally dedicate the goodness with this thought in mind. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you to the sound department. Ron, wherever you are, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you.